All right, guys, we are continuing with our study in the book of Revelation. Last time we were here, we were looking at the church of Thyatira, which basically dealt with the church for the period of the Dark Ages. Basically, that is the literal prophetic interpretation of that period is the church age that deals with the time from approximately 600 to 1500 A.D. It is called the Dark Ages of the Church because it was a time period in which the Roman Catholic Church exerted unusual authority over the church, bringing in a number of corruptible doctrines within the church and making Christianity uh, not be what God had intended for it to be in the first place. Or in other words, basically corrupting the true doctrines of Christianity, or as basically the text would say, adulterating it, okay? Adulterating the doctrines of Christianity. So now we're gonna move into the next period of time and discussing the next church, which will be the church of Sardis, all right? So let's start in Revelation chapter three, looking at verse number one. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. All right. So now we see the letter. The recipient of the letter is to the church of Sardis. And Sardis means those who are escaping. And now we find out that this is a very good name because it refers to the period of the Reformation. And, and, and that was approximately about 1500 to 1700 AD, the Reformation period. We know that all pretty much started with Martin Luther when he nailed his 95 Theses. But the point is, it is a point in time in which the church moves. And we also call it, um, <laughs> let me slow it down just a little bit. Some of the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation. Okay. So. When the church begins to move from under the great authority of the Roman Catholic Church and a lot of proper, correct doctrines of the church is espoused. And so such things as uh, sola scripture means script scripture alone is the means by which the life of a person should be governed. Sola scripture or uh, other doctrines like justification by faith alone through Christ alone. So certain doctrines such as these came out of the period of the reformation and all of these things were good. All right. And so this is basically what is being referred to when he talks about the church to, to Sardis, those who are coming out, that is coming out of the period of the dark ages, out of the authority exerted from the Roman Catholic church into the period for the Protestant Reformation. And so that is our prophetic understanding of that church, all right? Jesus addresses himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, this is also a beautiful thing too, because what we'll learn about that particular time period, that is the period of the Reformation, even though a number of great and important doctrinal creeds were established during this period. And I know, and although, although let me, let me say it this way, the, 
the people who began the Reformation, the first generation, they were moved and led by the Holy Spirit. And that's how the Reformation got started in the first place. However, by the time we get to the second generation of people that are born, that is during this particular time, these people no longer have the spirit of God. And the reason is, is because, okay, do you remember when we first talked about some time ago, actually, the church of Pergamos, remember that? And the idea of that means what? Thoroughly married. And that's when we talked about how Constantine in, in his edict, he made Christianity the state religion. And so therefore it was not necessary for people to have personal faith in Jesus. And you have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, son of God, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. So, and in this you are saved. So that's what I mean when I say the exercising of personal faith. So, but what Constantine did and allowed the church to do is people no longer had to exercise personal faith. They just simply came into Christianity and were simply baptized when they were not true believers in the first place. Okay. And that's what we mean by the marriage of the church and the state. Okay. As we moved into the next age of Thyatira, that's what we talked about previously to this particular church age. And that's when the Roman Catholic Church began to exert the authority over basic, uh, uh, predominantly Christian dome, basic Christianity, you know, as, as the Western world would come to know it. And so this and they brought in a bunch of heretical doctrines during this particular time at the same time. So but at the same time, the Catholic Church itself predominantly became the state church. OK. All right. So now as we move into the period of reformation, and that's what we are talking about now, when we're talking about the church to Sardis, those coming out of these things. All right. So they, they, the first generation was moved and led by the spirit. They were godly people for the most part, and they established a number of wonderful creeds and doctrines that are net necessary for the church. They did that. But by the time we get to the second generation, what had happened uh, uh, in basic, basically all of Europe, uh, they had adopted the same mentality as those in Pergamum. That's why I went back to Pergamum earlier. In other words, they re they began to basically reorganize state churches again. For example, in England, the state church was the Anglican church or in Germany, state church became the Lutheran church or Switzerland state church. I think were the Calvinists, things of that nature. But the point is in Europe, they just basically established state churches again. And people, if you lived in a certain region, or geography, okay, in England, you were basically baptized as a baby, baptized as a baby, and a baby cannot profess belief, but the point is, you were baptized as a baby, and therefore brought into the church, so therefore, the church was once again married, th these particular churches, married to the state once again, and there was no personal exercising 
of faith in Jesus Christ. You were just simply baptized as a baby and assumed as a Christian. Okay. And that was the point that was happening in Sardis. But anyway, so we were talking about the name that Jesus refers to himself. And, and so that's why and I got a little ahead of myself on that one. So these people who became members of the church in this way, that is don't exercise personal faith, but simply baptized as babies or young children, right? So they're not true believers. Therefore, they lacked the spirit of God. They are not spiritually alive, although they are members of the visible church. Remember, the visible church does not mean that you're saved. It just simply means these are people who profess Christianity, who profess a relationship with Jesus, whether or not that relationship is genuine or not. Okay, so these people became uh, uh, members in Christianity per se and were not really saved. Therefore, the idea is they lacked the spirit of God, the spirit of regeneration, the spirit that makes them a new creature. All right. So the whole issue as Jesus relates to himself, it has to do with this idea he who has the seven spirits of God, because he who is, and that is the seven spirits basically is the fullness of the spirit, or as we relate to the church in Sardis, that regenerative power of God that makes a person alive in Jesus, makes you alive in Jesus. So that's why Jesus takes this particular uh, view of himself from Revelations 1 and 4. That's why he takes this particular picture of himself as he speaks to the church of Sardis, because he desires for them to become spiritually alive or in other words, truly regenerate, truly born again, not just simply members in the church because their parents baptized them when they were infants, but truly members of Jesus body because they believe in him and trust him for their salvation. And this gives them life. And so this is why we see Jesus referring to himself in this manner and, and the seven stars. And there's not much that Jesus, okay, moving to the commendation side. So let's do that. There's not much that Jesus says commendable about this church, except for the fact that he says, I know your deeds. And that's not a lot to be said commendable. But like I said earlier, with respect to the period of Reformation, remember 1500s to basically 1700. Good start in the beginning with those who began this period of Reformation. Sometimes we refer to it as the Protestant Reformation, but it was it was very short lived. And we just really start a repetition again of the state churches. So it was not nothing. Good to say they had good doctrines and good creeds to come out of the church, but the people didn't live according to these creed simply because they were not regenerate, born again of the spirit. All right. And then he says that you have a name, that you are alive and that you are dead. And notice a name, the reputation that came out of the Protestant Reformation because of all of the creeds were good and people oftentimes praise the period of reformation because of this. And this is noteworthy. 
But the point is, it was not good enough because the church was still spiritually dead because of infant baptism, because of people simply coming into the church because it's the state church and not because of personal faith in Jesus. And that's why he said, you simply have a name or reputation of being alive. But notice the judgment of Jesus, or should I say, when I say judgment, I mean the idea of verdict. The verdict of our Lord is, spiritually you're not alive but you are dead so quite naturally we can assume that his assumption would be for spiritual life that's what we can assume the exhortation you can even look forward to that exhortation to spiritual life that is true faith the true expression of personal faith belief in jesus for yourself not simply in baptism not simply in being a member of a church, but being a person who believes in Jesus for themselves. Now, the thing that I would say with respect to this in a practical sense for today, it has a great deal of, of relevance because you look at the church today, the church is full of people, people of all kinds, people of all stripes. And people sometimes think just because they are a member of a church, somehow they are part of the true body of Jesus Christ. That doesn't make you a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Or you can look into churches and you can see churches that are busy doing all kinds of things with all kinds of ministries and people are involved in all of these different types of various activities, thinking, or having a name that they are alive, but in reality, they lack a spiritual, a true spiritual relationship with Jesus. And therefore, no matter what the church appears to be or what the people in the church appear to be doing in their works for God, they are still dead because of the lack of a personal relationship with Jesus, true and genuine faith. It has nothing to do with when you were baptized. It has nothing to do with your church attendance. It has to do with, do you believe, accept Jesus for yourself, the personal living relationship with God. And that's what that's all about on a practical basis. So it's more than simply going to church, more than taking communion, more than being baptized. It's about, do you know the Lord? Okay, so that's enough on the practical side and how it relates to us today. So now let's continue with the, uh, the, the exhortation, exhortation of Jesus, verse number two. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Okay, so Jesus now begins to exhort them, that exhortation, and usually that exhortation means to give heed to something that he is saying and make the necessary changes. So he says to the dead church, 
to resurrect, to live. That is, and the idea of that is simply truly convert, true conversion. Believe in Jesus. Like I was just saying in all of that hoopla a second ago, it's more than the physical activities. It's about the personal relationship with Jesus that makes a person alive in the spirit. Okay. And so that's what he means by the, the issue of awake, awaken, and then strengthen the things that remain. It gives also reference to remember when we talked about that time, that first generation of the reformation, they were alive spiritually, but the second generation that began to establish all of these state churches and do this infant baptism, allowing people membership into the church simply by being baptized as children. Okay. They were dead. They never had a relationship with Jesus, but they were still a part of the visible church. And so strengthen the things that remain. You need to come back into fellowship with God, right? Fellowship by virtue of that spiritual relationship. And then he says, because I have not found your deeds completed, you are not all that I desire you to be in the sight of God. Okay. Then he commands in verse number four, he tells them to remember the thing that they have heard and keep the things that they have heard and turn around. So remember, remember the doctrinal things. We can even say the things that they learned from the fathers of the reformation who had truly the spirit of God. All right. Remember those doctrines. Just like, remember what I said about doctrines. Doctrine is exceptionally important, but it is also equally important to have a transformed life by the spirit. You have to be born again. You can have all of the correct doctrines and still be dead. So he tells them to do what? To remember the thing that they heard, remember the thing that they received and keep it. Do we can all, all kind of like say, do what they did, <laughs> do what they did. And so repent from what you are doing now. All right. And then Jesus gives the warning and says, if they don't make the changes, that's what it said. If you do not wake up, if you don't make these changes, I'll come up on you like a thief. Now that is a, that is respect to the rapture of the church. And okay, let me explain it. So you'll get it. Those who are truly regenerate, that means you are alive. Remember the whole thing about Sardis is being spiritually alive. Those who truly are regenerate, spiritually alive will always be in the state like Jesus commanded the state of preparedness, the state of being awakened, the state of remember Jesus always warned the saints of God to be, be on your guard, to be aware. I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You don't know when I'm going to come. Therefore, a person should always be ready. And that has always been the teaching of Jesus to his people to be and to be ready Remember the whole thing about the virgins, the 10 virgins, five foolish and the five wise. But the point is, Jesus came in the middle of the night and you had to be awakened. You had to be awakened, spiritually prepared, be ready. OK, but those who are spiritually dead will not be awake. And so therefore, when the rapture comes or that is when Jesus comes, he'll simply find them asleep and they'll remain asleep and therefore they will be left on this earth. And that's the idea. 
But to those who are truly who listen, who remember the things that they've heard and received and repent and do these things that may become spiritually alive again, truly regenerate. Jesus won't catch them unaware in this way. Okay. And so that's what it's talking about. All right. So now let's get to verse number four, where he gives somewhat of a commendation and move to his promise. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. As a matter of fact, let me just simply deal with that. So Jesus simply says, there are just, and it means basically what it says, there are few people who are left in the church time period of Sardis period, okay? 1500, 1700, in the church of Sardis, in the literal sense. There are few people who are truly born again, who truly have the spirit, and therefore, what did Jesus say? They have not soiled their garment. They're just not simply members in the church and not truly saved in the first place. And so he promises that they'll be able to walk with it, walk with him in white, that is in white garments for they are worthy. The white garments, these are, uh, uh, it speaks of righteousness, the righteousness of salvation. So the bottom line is they will be saved. They will be saved. Okay. So now let's go to the promise of Jesus. He who overcomes verse number five, will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Okay. So in the final promise of Jesus, his edifying word here, he says to the one who overcomes, that just simply means who listens to what Jesus says and makes the necessary changes. So who need, who are, if I was simply to say, you ain't just going to church, but you truly have a relationship with Jesus. Even if that means you have to repent of having just gone to church and you say, Lord, I truly want you in my life. Okay. So to this particular individual, he promises again, the being clothed in the white garments, this once again refers to what salvation, the righteousness of salvation. And then he says, I won't erase his name out of the book of life. Okay. But I'll confess his name before my father. The confession of the name before my father and the angels simply means Jesus says, I will make a public declaration concerning that individual that he or she is mine. This is my child. This is my son. This is my daughter. Okay. So that is a public declaration that you are his. Now with respect to the point of being erased from the book of life, I don't want to get into a long issue concerning that, but let me give a, a brief explanation of it. Two basic books. We have the lamb's book of life and here we have the book of life. Now the difference in the lamb's book of life, as we'll see, I think it's Revelation chapter 13. The names that are written in the Lamb's book of life were written before the world was created. The, these names, these are literal names of human beings, of us, who were written before the world ever began. It is Jesus's book of people who God has given to him. 
All right. And from this book, since because this name is written before all times, no person's name ever can be taken from the Lamb's book of life. These are the people who are saved. All right. So, and, and now the whole issue does speak of eternal security, but I'm just trying to point out the distinction in the book. So the Lamb's book of life, people's name that were written before the world was ever created. That's why I said the Lamb book of life before the foundation of the world, the names were there. All right. That's what that literally means. All right. Now, but the book of life simply is this, the book of life is the is a, is a separate book is another book into which every person that is born, every person born name is in the book of life. Your name is already there. Every human being born, even people who died and went to hell at the beginning of their lives, their name was written in the book of life. Okay. Now, by the time that their life ends, if that person is not a believer in God has expressed faith in the true God, or in other words, as we would say today, if that person dies and is not saved, all right, then the person's name is erased out of the book of life. And you'll see that in the great judgment day in Revelation chapter 20. But the point is this, in the book of life, every person's name is initially written there when they are born, by the time that they die, whenever that time may be, if they are not saved, their name is erased. So the difference between the Lamb's book of life and the book of life is, in the Lamb's book of life, the names were written from all eternity past, before the world was ever created, and the names can never be erased, never be erased. But in the book of life, the names were written when the person was born, it was written then. But by the time the person dies, if they're not saved, the name can therefore be erased. So the difference fundamentally is, one, the Lamb's book of life, your name can never be erased, other, the book of life, your name can be erased. Okay. So all saints, all saints names are in both books. All saints, all saved people's name are in both books, the Lamb's book of life, as well as the book of life. All unsaved people's name is only temporarily in the book of life, but then at the time of death, is erased from it. But unsaved people's names have never been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Okay, I hope that clarifies some things. All right, and so that's what he promises that he will give you eternal salvation to those who overcome. And then he ends with his proclamation, his urging to all hear what he says to the churches. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me on that one, and we'll catch you next time for the next period, and it's the period of evangelism. See you then. Have you subscribed yet?